Uh, today is our time where we're going to celebrate communion. And I want to wrap uh, the communion time uh, with the message this morning. And so I'm going to ask that you uh, take out God's Word this morning and you uh, turn to the book of Psalms. Turn to the book of Psalms. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, grab the Pew Bible um, in the pew rack in front of you and you can find our passage on page 468. Page 468. We're going to finish up our series, Shattered. Uh, we've been looking at this uh, series and it's not been a, a clean series. It's been messy. Uh, it's, it's been dark. Uh, there have been some difficult passages of Scripture that we've had to look at. We've looked at one of the saddest stories in all of the Bible, the story of King Saul, the guy that seemingly had it all going for him, and yet after decision after decision of disobedience, uh, God would turn his back away from Saul, and he would feel the full ramifications uh, of his sin. He would lose his kingdom. And, and so we've learned over these last uh, three months um, that we are shattered people. We're broken. Maybe shattered because of no uh, wrong of our own. Maybe because of the circumstances of life, we find ourselves broken and, and beat up uh, because of the issues of life. Maybe it's because of sinful decisions we've made. Maybe we've chosen to go our own way and instead of following God and His Word, uh, doing it uh, our way, and now are feeling the consequences, the sting of some of those ramifications of the decisions we make. Whatever the reason is, we recognize, the Bible tells us over and over again, we're a broken people. And this series has, has been one that, that is focused in, as, as we've said over and over again, uh, on the yuckiness of, of who we are, the brokenness of who we are. And we've sat there for a while. We've, we've made an effort as a preaching team to really emphasize that brokenness. And, and some may say, well, well I, could, I could hear that, and you didn't give a lot of positives in this message. Well, in First Samuel, there's not a lot of positives. And yet, we recognize that when we see how broken we are, wouldn't you agree our Savior becomes so much more radiant? So much more beautiful? You see, the more we understand our messy lives and, and the, the issues of sin that we have in our lives, Jesus in His holiness looks so much grander, so much greater. And what we're going to do today is, my, my points are very simple this morning. You have a blank outline sheet, and I can just tell you the two points right away. They're not even going to be on the screen but the two points I have, you can put one on the front of it, uh, of that outline sheet, and one on the back. Here it is. It's simple. We are all shattered. First point. We are all shattered. And because we're all shattered, point number two, we all need a Savior. We all need a Savior. That's my point. That's my aim this morning, is to prove to us that we're all broken people and that we all need a Savior and what a way to bring us then to the communion table to remind us in our brokenness, in our messiness, in the circumstances of this at times really hard life, we need someone to come to our aid. But before I do that, before I read our passage this morning, just a couple reminders for those especially who have not uh, celebrated communion with us. I want to take care of some housekeeping issues uh, with regards to when we celebrate. We'll be celebrating communion at the end of uh, the message and, uh, and, and here's how it goes. We'll pass, uh, we'll, uh, pass these uh, trays around, and in each of the trays are our cups. And we do it a little differently. For some, uh, they'll pass two trays, one that has the bread and one that has the cup. We, we send one tray that has two cups in it. Make sure you grab both cups. The bread is on the bottom, the juice is on the top, and then we'll celebrate together after a time of prayer. 
The scripture tells us we are to examine ourselves. That we are not to go into this casually. We do a lot of things very casually in this world. But in the book of 1 Corinthians, we are told that many people in the time uh, of the Corinthian church had made a mockery of this time of communion. And the Bible says, Paul tells us, that many, because of their mocking of the communion table, had fallen ill or had even died. And that tells us the weightiness of the matter that we are about to be a part of. And so as a church, we we are are, are always, as elders, wanting to admonish each and every person who's going to participate in communion to ask some questions. One of the questions we ask is, number one, we know that communion is a proclamation of what Christ has done in our lives. And so this isn't for everyone. Right away, it it begins to uh, draw in or narrow its use. First of all, to take communion means that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you bowed the knee to His Lordship? Have you received His salvation? The second thing that we know from the New Testament is is that communion and baptism are connected. Uh, Communion is something that is an issue of intimacy. It's something that is to happen over and over and over again. We are told that we are to partake of these things and, and proclaim His death until He comes. So it's something that goes on again and again and again. But this isn't the only ordinance, the only command God gave His people. We are told that when we come to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we are to proclaim that in the waters of baptism. Now, baptism is something we only do once. It's only something that is done once to proclaim our entrance into the body of Christ. It is to tell the world through an outward picture of what has happened on the inside. And so one of the things that we see throughout the New Testament is is that people are saved, they're baptized, and then They break the bread and drink of the cup together. And so what we admonish those is that if you've never done that, that you would not move to step three, if you will, in your relationship with Jesus Christ, but you would stop and say, have I I not only bowed the knee to Jesus, but have I entered the waters of baptism? Now the Bible doesn't require it. It never says thou shalt be baptized before you take communion. But there seemingly is a pattern of what God wants us to know through the New Testament. And what we see is that baptized believers partook of communion. So we would encourage you, if you've never been baptized before, that today you would make a decision, I want to be baptized. And we will help you to understand what baptism is all about. We'll get you baptized, get you the opportunity to proclaim your walk with Jesus Christ and, and invite you to come and be a part of communion. But it goes beyond just the decisions that you make about yourself. The final thing that we want you to examine each and every time we come to the table is not only your relationship with God, asking the question, hey, Am I all right with God? Now, that doesn't mean that each time we've got to question our own salvation. But what it means is we've got to ask the question, how is my relationship? I don't mean to be funny, and so please don't take it this way, but a husband can't desire intimacy with his wife if if they've been fighting all day long. And so uh, we can't desire intimacy with our Father in heaven if we have not made right with Him on on a daily basis. And so as we enter into this time of communion, We stop and we examine ourselves and ask the question, am I walking in total obedience to my God? And so the question has to be asked, are there things in my life that I've not asked and sought forgiveness for? Are there things that that may be an affront to God that I can't seek to draw close to Him if those things are still alive and well in my life? And so we're going to give you time to examine your hearts and to ask the question, are there any sins that have been left unconfessed in my life? 
The final one is the issue of not only communion with God. You see, we don't do this. We don't hand you the elements and say, hey, go take care of this at home. You know, do it by yourself. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that communion was for the church. It was to be done in a gathered assembly of Christians. And so one of the things that we need to be reminded of is as we commune together with God, we are not doing so in isolation from everyone else. We're doing it together. And so the Bible says is we ought to examine ourselves and ask the question, how are we doing in our relationship with one another? You can't harbor um, unforgiveness in your life. You can't harbor malice and slander in your life and think that you can draw close to the God who forgives and the God who loves. And so one of the things the Bible makes clear is in Matthew chapter 5, that before we worship God, this should happen every Sunday, but especially I think on Communion Sunday, is in Matthew 5 we are told that if we know as we enter into the place of worship that something is wrong with our brother, that we have offended our brother or hurt our brother, we are to leave our gift at the altar and go make right. And so if there is something that, that has taken place that maybe you and a brother are not seeing eye to eye, maybe you and your wife aren't seeing eye to eye, maybe you and your child aren't seeing eye to eye, we would say before coming and partaking, number one, you'd get right with God with regards to that issue, but that you would also get right with that individual. The Bible tells us very clearly that none of us deserve to participate in communion, but God freely opens the door to all those who have bowed the knee to Jesus, who are walking in fellowship with him to come in confidence and partake of the table. But what does communion mean? What does it involve? Communion is a reminder. It's a reminder, first of all, of our problem and then the solution that God brings. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Psalm 40, as I said, page 468. And I'm going to read just a couple verses, share a little bit from the text, and then we're going to spend some time uh, in communion uh, together. And I want this to be our focus, to be our, our, our aim this morning, if you will, um, to, uh, to lead us into this time of communion. Psalm 40 says the following. It's written by David, it says, and it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined my ear, he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew up from the pit, drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet there are more than can be told. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we ask for your blessing on this time. I pray that uh, through the teaching of this text that we would understand those two very important points. We are shattered and we need a Savior. Father, I pray that it would sweeten our time as we gather around the table. We would do so in a, a way that is upright and pleasing to you so that we may truly experience the intimacy you desire for us to have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Point number one this morning. It's quite simple. We're all shattered. We're all shattered. I want you to say that with me. I don't want you to be a group of robots, but if you really believe that, 
I want you to say it with me. We're all shattered. Say it. We're all shattered. Okay? Now, I know some of you right away will have a check and say, wait a minute, Tim, you may be shattered. The person next to me may be shattered, but, but I'm not shattered. Uh, the reason why that comes up, quite frankly, the Bible tells us, is it's an issue of pride. That, that we think we're doing better than we really are. The Bible makes it clear, though, that as uh, people are part of the human race, God's verdict is that we are broken down sinners, filthy in our sin. This sin began in our mother's womb before we were uh, brought into this world, but conceived in this sin. This sin impacts all of who we are. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be, but it affects every part, every faculty of our lives. And because of that, we find ourselves in scenarios, in situations that are difficult. Notice what is going on. David says, David says, hey, I've got a problem. Notice what he says in verse, chapter, or verse 2 of chapter 40. He says, I'm in the pit of destruction. I'm in the miry bog. That's the situation that's going on. And it's a beautiful picture of our situation as sinners. You see, God planted us in a garden with all that we could desire or want. He took care of all of our needs and we chose to rebel against Him. Uh, we did so through our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And we could have put ourselves there. If it wasn't Adam and Eve, it could have been Tim and Amanda. It could have been any one of us and we would have done the same thing. Rebel against the God who had given us so much. And because of that, we find ourselves in situation after situation trying to live life on our own, and we land ourselves in the pit of destruction, we find ourselves in the bog of the mud. And notice the situation. We're told nothing about what's going on in Psalm 40. We know it's written by David, but we don't know what's caused this pit of destruction to take place. Many believe that he was probably on the run from King Saul, who was filled with jealousy as we learned in our Shattered series, but we don't know. But notice how he describes it. He calls it the pit of destruction, the miry bog. And whatever it is, he's experienced rock bottom. He describes it as destructive. It's translated as horrible, desolate. This word destruction literally speaks of an incredible tumult, the worst of storms at sea. And it says that he's deep into it. This is not a pretty situation. The situation he declares is a place of utter darkness and he's stuck knee-deep in it. He can't get out of it. Have you been there before? Have you been in that miry bog, that, that well of, of destruction, that pit? For some of you this morning, you find yourself there. Helplessness, desperation, hopelessness. Maybe you find yourself at the breaking point of, of being overworked, not being able to fill what the boss is wanting done. Maybe you find yourself as a mom or a dad at, a, at points of great exasperation because of trying kids. Maybe you're there because of temptation. You wake up every morning, you say, I'm not going to do that thing, that thing I'm so embarrassed about, that thing that I know is going to bring me to my demise. I'm not going to do it anymore. And then that temptation comes and you find yourself going to it once again. Maybe you're a student just struggling in school and struggling with the expectations that people have on you. Maybe it's the grinding stress of, of illness. Maybe it's an issue of an attack by a powerful enemy. Maybe even one of a demonic nature. Maybe it's the dark cloud of anxiety or depression that just won't let go. 
You see, we're a shattered people. And maybe you haven't experienced that today. Maybe you've experienced it sometime in the past. But the Bible makes it clear that man is born to troubles as sparks fly upward. And so it's a reminder that at some point in time, because of our sin, because of the sin that's been placed upon humanity, that we recognize that at some point we're going to be born to trouble. At some point you're going to find yourself in the pit. It's a good time then to understand what that pit's all about. Now notice, we don't know anything more about the pit than that it's dark. It's a place of hopelessness. It makes it seemingly easier for us to understand by limiting all the uh, expressions about it. But whatever it is, we can recognize this morning that the pit that David is talking about is whatever steals your joy, your hope that God is on your side. See, this is the pit that David's talking about. And it's the powerful image that we have as believers of where we were before Christ. We were in a pit. A pit of sin that was inescapable. Notice he calls it the pit of destruction. But then he says, notice, that it's a miry bog. You see, it's a bog that literally we're trying to get out of. It's a muddy mess. And we're trying to escape it. And you see that in our world today. Atrocity upon atrocity. Trial upon trial. All kinds of murderous things taking place. And we have politicians and leaders and people who will say, well, this is how we fix it. If we pass this law, if we do this community initiative, this will take care of it. But it only finds ourselves just as all things from a human perspective do when trying to deal with a sinful issue, having us spin our wheels in the mud. This issue of, of the miry bog is a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture of, of where we find ourselves stuck. For those old enough, you remember in 1992, we elected Bill Clinton as our president. And on that day that Bill Clinton was elected president in November, I remember it as if it was yesterday. You see, as election turns were coming in, I was up to no good. I had asked my father if I could borrow uh, his work van to go out and hang out at a friend's house. He didn't know, but I was lying at the time. It had snowed that day. Maybe some of you might remember. It was a beautiful snow. Five or six inches had fallen after a steady rain. And my buddies had said, let's go find some fun. Let's go bogging around in the mud. And so that's what we did. And for the next couple hours, it was one of the greatest times of my life. Until I got stuck. You see, I got stuck in a ditch. And as much as I tried, I couldn't get out. For the next 14 hours... With the help now of my dad, we tried to get that van unstuck, and we got it more stuck and more stuck. And we thought we could find a new way to get out of the, um, the ditch by driving into what we thought was a drier field, which got more stuck. The next morning, after hours of trying to get it out, 50-some farmers thought it was hilarious to drive down a country road and find a work van in the middle of a field, stuck. We tried to get it out with a small tractor. The tractor got stuck. They said it was going to have to wait till spring. I knew I wasn't going to be able to sit down on my hiney for, for a while till spring after that news came out. And then I remember one farmer came, and he was all excited because he had just bought the John Deere 5,655,000 edition or something like that. 
He had said that it was going to mean that they were going to have to close down some roads to get the tractor there. That the tractor had big tires, an independent um, differential that would allow it to get down into uh, the, the mud and pull it out. After an hour with one of John Deere's best machines, we would get the van out. To the day that we sold that vehicle, it had mud in it at all times. You see, it's a great reminder that when we are in our sin, just as David said, in the miry bog, we can try to get it out on our own, but we need something greater. We need something more powerful than ourselves. Because when we try to do it on our own, we'll just keep spinning the tires. We'll keep digging ourselves bigger ruts and bigger uh, holes in our lives. And so notice the struggle. David says, I'm in this miry bog. And, and notice that there's some different ways that can be advertised. He says in, in verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. What that means is when he's in the bog, he looks to the Lord. But notice not every one of us does that. In verse uh, chapter 4, he says, Those who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You see, there's a lot of those out there this morning that will say the way you get out of your bog, the way you get out of your muddy mess is to follow them. It's to follow their answer. It's to follow this regimen, this kind of living, this, this kind of life. And, and in doing so, you'll be all okay. But the Bible makes it clear that the only way we'll get out of this bog is we need a rescuer. We need someone who comes and, and rescues us. A couple weeks ago, I went to a movie. It was called The 33. It's a story of the Chilean miners uh, who were caught, uh, I think it was like a half a mile in, inside of a mountain. And in the first part of the movie, after the collapse takes place, those 33 men do everything in their power, everything in their, in their might to, to get out of the mine. And what they come to is dead end after dead end. They can't do it. And they come to a point, a to total point of exasperation that says, you know what? We can't get out on our own. We need to be rescued. There's nothing we can do. Salvation is found this morning in the life of the one who says, I'm in a bog. I can't get out of this pit of destruction. And what I have to do is I have to now cry out for help for someone to rescue me. You see, you can't participate in communion until you recognize that you are broken and shattered. You're in a well and you need the rescue. And what we're going to learn is, is that what David proclaims. Notice he says that once we come to the point that we recognize we're stuck, notice he says, I waited patiently in verse 1 for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He recognizes that he needs help. He's broken. He's in trouble. And he knows he needs to help. And so what does he do? He cries out, help me. Help me. I'm stuck. Help me. I'm down here and I can't get out. It's the cry of a young child who knows they're in deeper than, than they should be. Deeper than anything. And they cry out, mom, dad, come help me. I'm in trouble. This is what David does. And notice he recognizes what we must recognize. Yes, we're all shattered. We're in a pit of destruction. And we're in a miry bog. And we need a Savior. We need a Savior. Notice this Savior, he says, I wait patiently. For who? For his neighbors? For his friends? For that, for that bottle of whiskey? 
for that, that entertainment, for that pleasure? No, he says, I wait patiently for the Lord. The Lord is his rescuer. And this is a great reminder for us. The great story of the Scriptures is that, yes, we're in a miry bog. Yes, we are, are um, broken and shattered, all messed up. But there was one who would come to the rescue. One who would come and, and rescue us from our pit of destruction. His name was Jesus. And notice what Jesus is going to do. And, and David proclaims this. He says, He drew me from the pit of destruction. Verse 2. That term, drew me up, is an important phrase. Literally what it means is the one who was going to rescue was going to pull him up out of the well just as you would fetch a pail of water. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about that you hear a cry that someone is, is in a well, and you're on top of the earth, and you hear this, and you come, and, and, and there's a rope down that has a pail, and you hear, I've fallen in here, I can't get out. And your job then is, is to take that rope and, and tell them to grab on, and I'm going to pull. Now, I don't care if it's another adult, I don't care what size they are, that's going to be a hard task. It isn't going to be easy. And so hand by hand, inch by inch, foot by foot, with all your might, with all of your straining, you're going to pull that individual up. That's what the Lord does in this situation. Notice a couple things. We need a Savior, one who will lift us up. He'll lift us up. This, this idea of lifting up literally, drawing up literally means the use of both bare hands. Using all your might, pulling upon pulling. Agony and strain of the rescuer. When Jesus lifts us up out of the miry bog, listen, he doesn't do it by snapping his fingers. Okay, you're up. Hey, good trip up. When Jesus came and found us in our miry bog, in that pit of destruction, Jesus took it upon himself to save us by his own hands, by his feet. Straining and agonizing, sweating even to the point of blood, going to the cross and enduring a criminal's death so that we might be drawn out of that miry pit. He lifts us up. He does what we can't do on our own. We're stuck. There's no opportunity for us to get out. Even in our attempts, we only find ourselves digging ourselves in deeper. But Jesus came. He put on flesh. He made His dwelling among us so that He might with His own hands and His own flesh pull us out so that we might be with Him. But notice, once He lifts us up, once He draws us out of the pit of destruction, He keeps us up. It says at the end of verse 2, And He set My feet upon a rock, making My steps secure. Have you ever tried to walk around in mud? It's slippery. You can get no traction. It's difficult. But here's the thing. When Jesus pulls us out, He puts us on a solid rock that we can stand on so that we will always be secure. And so here's the great promise. If God has pulled you out of the pit of destruction, listen to me, you never have to worry about falling in it again. That's the great truth. We don't ever have to wonder, okay, I'm saved. God has done this great work in me. But what happens if, what happens if that, what happens if I really start to, to, to fall off the rails and, and, and fall by my own accord or because of someone's temptation? 
What happens? The Bible makes it clear that everyone who is in the Father's hands is secure. Jesus says, no one can pluck them from my Father's hands. We are secure. Notice he does something else. He, he what I would say, tunes us up. In verse 3, it says that he put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. So that many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And so we see that not only does he pull us out, but as he pulls us out, he sets us on secure ground. And then he puts in us a song. What makes us sing? Singing is an overflow of joy. It's an overflow of, of what has transpired. In the moments of some of the greatest triumphs in life have come great songs. I remember back in, in April when we were dealing with Amanda's surgery and, and cancer, I I was, it was a Saturday. Amanda was still in the hospital. And, and I went to coach one of the boys' soccer games and then go and spend some time with her. And during that time, the, the pathology report came back. And I remember standing coaching the soccer team and, and being on the phone listening to the oncologist uh, telling us what the report was. I don't remember what happened in that soccer game during that point. I remember kids running around and people cheering but I was in tune with what the message on the phone was all about. And I remember when, when the surgeon said, hey, there's no cancer in the lymph nodes. It's all contained in her breast. It's, it's all done. This cancer surgery should have taken care of it. You have reason to rejoice. And I remember the, the doctor said, Tim, you're going to have your wife for a long time. And I remember hanging up the phone. And I remember at that moment, during the soccer game, with parents and kids listening, okay, and again, I don't remember if we scored any goals or anything, but I remember singing, How Great Is Our God. Sing with me, How Great Is Our God. And all the world will see, How Great Is Our God. When we are in the miry bog, and someone draws us out, let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to sing the praises of the One who rescued you. So it begs the question this morning. Listen, and this is very important. And this is what scares me many times in my own life. If I believe that Jesus has rescued me from that miry bog, from that pit of destruction, then why is it, Tim, you're not singing about Him like you should? Why is it that you're bored by the things of God? That you put on, on your clock the things of God while everything else you say, hey, to the world, I've got all the time in the world when it comes to singing the praises of God and hearing the praises of God and, and listening to people proclaim the praises of God. Well, you've only got a little bit of time. I was rescued out of the pit. The one who rescued me is the God of the universe. And I've got limited words, limited lyrics in my life to proclaim His goodness. You see, communion is a reminder that there should be a song in our heart. Now, there's a couple of things about this song very quickly. Number one, it's a new song. He doesn't say it's an old song. An oldie but a goodie. He says it's a new song. And it's a new song because, listen, you can't sing a song of deliverance out of the pit until you've been there. Amen? It's, <laughs> you, I once heard it said by Muddy Waters, no pun intended with the miry bog, Muddy Waters, the great blues singer, you can't sing the blues until you've been there for a long, long time. And that's true of this new song. 
We can't experience singing this new song until we've been in the pit, until we recognize I can't get out. And when he draws me out and I see the light of day again, my song, my song just bursts out from my heart of how great and glorious my rescuer is. Notice this new song, by the way, never gets old. In Revelation 5.9, it says, we will gather around the throne of God and we will sing to Him a new song. Here's the thing. It's the same song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, glory, and dominion. And here's the thing. We're going to sing that new song over and over and over and over again all throughout eternity. And no one's going to say, is that radio station going to play that song again? No. We're going to eat it up every time. Hey, it's our song. We love that song. It's the song of the redeemed, of the rescue. Notice the other thing about the song. It says he put a new song. I want you to notice in the text. Look very carefully. He put a new song in my heart, right? Is that what your translation says? In my heart? In my mind? Where does he put it? Help me out. Tell me, congregation. My mouth. What is your mouth used for? To let other people hear it. So when he puts that new song in our, our hearts, that doesn't help. I can hide that. He doesn't put it in my mind so that someone has to read my mind to get there. No, he says he put it in my mouth. The mouth is used to communicate to others. And so what are we to communicate? Just as communion says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we sing this new song, we tell to the world, I've got a redeemer. I've got a rescuer. I've got one. I was in the miry bog and I had one who drew me out of that destructive pit. His name is Jesus. And the song you hear every day at work, the song you hear when I'm in the community, the song you hear when I'm with my family is the song of the redeemed. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. How much are you singing that song this morning? That salvation song. Well, maybe as we come and bring this to a close, maybe today you find yourself in that pit. Maybe it's a pit. Maybe you've trusted Christ as your Savior. David was a man after God's own heart, and he finds himself in this pit. And yet, notice what his words are to you today if you're in that pit this morning. Notice, first of all, be patient. He says, listen, I wait on the Lord patiently. Now, that doesn't mean that David sits there and says, I'm just going to sit here and, and sit in the mud and, and be angry. And if the Lord comes, great. If He doesn't, well, I, maybe I had an idea that He might not. The idea there, I, I waited patiently for the Lord literally is, while waiting, I waited. The idea there is that there's a process to His waiting. He's waiting expectantly. He's waiting knowing that an answer is going to come. He's waiting knowing that he will not remain there. And so with full assurance of faith and hope, he says, I'm waiting on the one who promises to save. Now that promise may be uh, seen in the here and now. now. Maybe it may not. But here is what we know. That promise is secure. That we are told that whether in life or in death, we will always be in the presence of our Lord. We are to wait patiently waiting for our rescuer to come. Number two, we are to pray. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. So what is he doing while he's waiting? 
He's crying out, rescuer, come and get me. I'm down here. I've fallen in this pit and I need help. For some of us during this time of examination of communion, we need to be honest with our God and cry out to Him. Have you ever wondered that maybe the reason, listen, this is very important, maybe the reason why you can't get out of your pit is you've never cried for help. You've tried to do it on your own, but never a word has come out to say, hey, I'm down here. I I can't get out. We need to pray. We need to let the Lord know what we're feeling. The Bible says that our Heavenly Father draws close to those who are brokenhearted. Have you shared with Him your broken heart? Notice He says, proclaim. It says, you have multiplied in verse 5, O Lord my God, Your wondrous deeds and Your thoughts towards us, no one can compare with You. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. The idea here is when we are rescued, when we are lifted out, again, that that song wells up with us and we will proclaim to others that we've been saved. We've been rescued. As we come to a time of communion, it's these thoughts that I want us to meditate on. It's these thoughts that I want us to think upon. We are shattered people. We're in a miry bog. We are in a pit of destruction. But thanks be to God that He has rescued us and drawn us out. I'm going to pray and ask the servers to come forward and then give you some time to examine your hearts. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before You and we thank You for this truth in Your Word. And now, Lord, I pray that as we take time to remember Your goodness to us, that we would remember, first of all, how broken we really are. That we would proclaim to You our brokenness. Not be ashamed of it. To own it. Whether it's our own doing or, or because of someone else, that we would just be honest and say, Lord, I need help. I need You in my life. And so, Lord, I pray that during this time of examination, we would seek our own hearts, we would examine them, and we would make sure that we have done our due diligence in honoring You, not only with our actions of taking these elements, but also in seeking a contrite and humble heart that seeks Your forgiveness. Lead us in this time by Your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.